0: As she's in labor and, you know, crying out in, in her labor pains, one of the guards says to her, well, you didn't think about this, did you? You know, you're you're in pain now. How, how's it going to be tomorrow when you're going to be thrown to the beasts? I guess you didn't think about that, did you? Um, something like that. And she says, you know, right now I suffer what I suffer, but tomorrow there will be another one in me and he will suffer for me because I suffer for him.
1: Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading
2: thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another
1: episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley. And I'm Dr. Benjamin Quinn. In today's Christ and Culture Conversation, we're going to talk to Dr. Stefana Dan-Lang about some women that you may have never heard about in church history. And after that, we'll have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, we want to tell you about some exciting news here at the Center for Faith and Culture. We're finalizing the details for our spring conference. It will be in February of 2022 called Exploring Personhood, What is a human being? Dr. Keithley, can you tell us a little more about this? Uh, I'm very excited about this
2: conference. I think this is going to be a highlight of 2022. The whole idea of trying to understand what it means to be a person. There are those who try to uh, construct a definition of personhood from below. They try to do so as anthropologist or as biologist or as sociologist, And I do think that they all of these disciplines play an important role in understanding who we are as human beings. But can we arrive at what we mean by person working from below? And I'm not sure you can. In fact, I'm pretty sure you cannot, because fundamentally, a person is a theological concept. I think it's an essential concept. I think that unless we start uh, from the perspective, the the biblical perspective, that each human being is a person created in his image, um, that we'll have difficulty understanding that simply by looking at us as members of the created order. When one uh, engages with scientists, uh, they deal with human beings as members of the animal kingdom. And we are creatures. We were created by God uh, out of the dust of the earth, uh, just like all of the other creatures here on earth. But I think that uh, scientists and sociologists can tell us about that which makes us distinct. They may even be able to talk about that which makes humans unique. But can they talk about what makes humans exceptional, uh, I'm not sure they can. I'm not sure they can get there. So I think this is uh, this conference is going to discuss that. Uh, what does it mean for a human being to be a person? Mm. Hence the title, Exploring Personhood, What is a Human Being?
1: That's incredibly helpful, Doc. I think about this even with my own kids who are in public school, but also the music we listen to, the shows that we watch. What is so often implicit in those conversations, anytime they engage with what we might call anthropology or what it means to be a human being, it's almost always a bottom-up perspective. We don't always recognize that, but it's some type of constructed, socially constructed, or whatever else, assumption that's woven into that. And it's so helpful to just back up and say, from a Christian perspective, we understand who we are first in relation to our Creator Himself. Yes. And to start and th- the conversation there.
2: And, and and it's not that we are denigrating the importance of the bottom-up sure. work. Sure. It informs us in very important ways. But as Christians, we start from a biblical perspective.
1: No, exactly. Not to denigrate the bottom-up work, but at the same time, we lose definition when we start there. We gain so much more clarity when we begin at the beginning with God himself. So much more we could say. Uh, The the conference is February the 10th and 11th. That's a Thursday and a Friday. Uh, Some of the speakers include scientists Justin Barrett and Jeff Schloss, uh, theologian John Baer, Mark Cortez, even our own Dr. John Hammett, Old Testament scholar Carmen Imes, and New Testament scholar Amy Peeler. It's going to be a really good time. We hope that you can join us in person, but if not, you can join us online. Uh, registration starts at just $10, and we'll have a registration uh, link for that in the show notes for this particular episode. We're looking forward to the conference. We hope that you can join us. One last thing before we talk to Dr. Lang: do us a huge favor. Go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast, rate this podcast, give us a short review. That small step goes a long way in helping us spread the word about the Christ and Culture podcast and the work of the Center for Faith and Culture. Our Christian faith has been passed down from generation to generation, but sadly. Most Christians know very little about their spiritual forefathers. Dr. Stefana Dan Lang
2: wants to change that. She's assistant professor of divinity at Beeson Divinity School, and she's the author of Retrieving History, Memory and Identity Formation in the Early Church. So she joins us today to talk about church history and why we should care. Dr. Lang, thank you for being with us today.
0: Thanks for inviting
2: me. I grew up in a Baptist church and it wasn't just a Baptist church, it was of the landmark tradition of which the patristics were looked upon with a great deal of suspicion. I'm glad to see that today, Baptists are coming around to appreciate the early fathers much more. So let's start with the obvious question. Why should Christians care about church history?
0: Yeah. Thanks for the intro. Um, I also grew up in a Baptist church. It was a Romanian Baptist church. And, you know, when I think of history, I think the church's history is our history. All these people throughout the ages that identify as Christians, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, we are a united we're related by the blood of Christ. And um, I think we should care about our family, not just the family that we see in front of us right now, but the family of, you know, prior generations going all the way back um, to, well, I mean, I'd like to say to the first century. But, you know, when Eusebius writes his church history, we call Eusebius kind of the first church historian. And
2: about what time did he write?
0: Uh, In the fourth century, um, Mm -hmm. in the um, early early three hundreds, um, and I actually think he's the second church historian because I think that Luke was the first. Anyway, good call. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I want to be biblical? When Eusebius talks about the church and the church's history, the church's story, um, he talks about it in terms of the people of God, which actually then goes all the way back into the Old Testament, all the way to the beginning. So when he talks about um, the church, he's He's including even, you know, saints of, uh, of the Old Testament. So it's, it's interesting. So any, anyone who has walked with God is part of the people of God and so is part of our history. It's part of our heritage as well. So, um, yeah, so when I think of the church, I think about it as a family. Um, some are here with us. Some have already gone uh, to be with the Lord. And I think that for all sorts of reasons, uh, we should we should know them. Their examples are instructive. Some lived lives of of great holiness that are good examples for us, and others were like Augustine, <laughs> great sinners before they came to the Lord. And you know, a lot of us can relate to that as well. And so um, I think that there's a lot a lot to learn from. Never mind that we believe in the communion of the saints and that one day after the resurrection that we'll all be together with the Lord and we'll be, you know, at the, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we'll be all together with these folks. So I'd like to, you know, know their backstory before I meet them in person, which I believe that one day I will.
2: Well, often we speak of the church fathers are the patristic era Uh, Tell our listeners, what do you mean whenever uh, you as a church historian make that reference?
0: Yeah, the patristic era just refers to the time of what we call the church fathers. So men and women who contributed to the, the life and writings and doctrine and spiritual life of the church. We're talking about basically the time between the death of the last apostle, so the end of the first century, to about... Maybe the end of the fifth century. Some some folks might extend that to the seventh century, but usually we end around um, the five hundreds. So, um, so that's that's the patristic era.
1: Doctor Lang. So, just to be a bit provocative, here we are in a Baptist context. Occasionally, we might get a reply from a student or from a church member or something like that. Hey, look, we're Protestants. We're Evangelicals. We're even Baptists. Why would we care about all this so-called Catholic history? how would you respond to that?
0: Yeah. Uh, well, the patristic era was a time when there was no Catholic and Protestant. Um, it was it was Catholic with a small C and Orthodox with a small O. And Catholic just means universal or, or worldwide. I mean, it wasn't that widespread <laughs> at the time, but they just meant the whole communion um, of the church. And Orthodox just referred to um, correct doctrine, um, doctrine according to um, the consensus of the church uh, that has studied um, the scriptures and, um, you know, that has agreed on particular doctrinal points. So, um you know, why should we care about um, Catholic and, and Orthodox history? It's, I mean, it's still the Christian family. <laughs> it's still the church, and there's still our brothers and sisters, and there's still relatives uh, with us uh, in, in the blood of Christ. In other so. words,
1: uh, the history of, of the, those who came right after the apostles, that's even our history. Fair it enough. Is. And so, in other words, Baptists, we, we tend to pretend as though our history begins in the 16th century, whereas actually we want to stretch it all the way back to the Apostles.
0: Well, I think some pretend that it began you know, with Lottie Moon and <laughs> a, little, <laughs> exactly. a little more recently well, than speaking
1: that. Of, uh, speaking of Lottie Moon, <laughs> or at least influential women in the church, you talk a lot about one of my favorite women from uh, from church history, St. Perpetua. Mm-hmm. Would you tell us just a little bit about who she is and why she's a story worth remembering for today?
0: Yeah. Oh, Perpetua, she was a North African woman, about 22 years old, a young wife, a young mother, a new mother. She had an infant. And the martyrdom of Perpetua and her servant, Felicitas, is very, um, very much celebrated um, in the church. It's a, a martyrdom that took place in about 203 AD. And basically, Perpetua writes about this herself um this is this is one thing this is one reason why the work is uh, very special. It's it's unique. Um, I think it's the first writing that we have by the hand of a woman in this era. So Perpetua is keeping kind of a prison diary, and she records um, what happens to them, uh, stage by stage, when they're arrested, when they go on trial, and what happens, and her family that comes, and church members that come. It really gives us a great window into um, what happens in the church when. Somebody from your church gets arrested, and then you know what are the movements of the rest of the of the congregation? What what can you what can you do? How can you address it? What are the the consequences? The the further reaching consequences for the families of those who are apprehended, um, and then how are they themselves seeing it from the inside? See, we get we get a view of what happens from the church, but it's all from Perpetua's uh, vantage point, and she's on the inside, and so. We can see some things that are very familiar to us. You know, she had been in this um, Bible study. She converted. She was being um, catechized. That means she was receiving a you know kind of a, a biblical education from her um, Bible study teacher. And they were arrested at a time when it was illegal to convert in their area. And while in prison, they were baptized. <laughs> Uh, which is just uh, flabbergasting, I think, just to think about. She describes the prison. She, she has kind of a, a liability in that she has a child with her and she's breastfeeding. This is really a very different perspective than most of the documents that we have from the church fathers. As far as consequences for her family, um, not only is her child in danger, but her father turns up and he indicates that their whole family could be in danger because of what she's doing. And so what we see is this very heartrending, heart wrenching scene. Actually, several scenes where you have these conversations between Perpetua and her father. These these brief exchanges, and it's just amazing how she um, expresses herself. You can see her cho- consistently choosing Christ over her family, and with each conversation, she's she gets a little bit more distant from her father. Um, and her her father is a little bit unusual as well, because the Roman father has the power of life and death over really everybody in his household. There are very set places for women to be. And it's clear that her father has really invested in her. He's favored her, which is a little unusual for, you know, for a father to behave that way with his daughter. But with every conversation, she's getting a little further away from him. And what's interesting in the document is that in between, I I think this is correct, in between each conversation, she's having a vision. And these visions are visions that are, um, she takes them as from the Lord, they're edifying visions. And in the visions, uh, she's addressed as daughter. So it's almost like she comes from this pagan family into a new family of Christians and in these visions it's clear to her that the reality is that she has an even bigger family uh, in heaven, uh, a spiritual family that um, through martyrdom she will be joining them. And mm-hmm. so and so her upcoming death, which she can see is pretty much set, um, is not a liability. It's not something to, to mourn and to, to lament over completely i mean it is it is lamentable but not to lament over completely because it means that she will be you know joined to this this wonderful uh family that also has been bought by the blood of jesus Mm -hmm. it's very amazing
2: if my memory serves me correctly doesn't the judge plead with her please don't make me do this to you why don't you recant if you'll just you just step away then I don't have to render this verdict. She was under incredible pressure. She
0: was under extreme pressure, yeah. Um, Not not so much from the judge in this account, but from her father. Mm -hmm. What the judge did say to her when the the judge could see this family drama playing out, and and basically he said to her, look at your dad, look at your old dad, look at his gray hairs. You know, you need to step back from this foolishness and her father said the same kind of thing to her you know why have i invested in you all your life even above your brothers he says which is actually very amazing Uh, the the pressure was intense plus he was kind of using her infant as a bit of a bargaining chip as well
2: so how was she martyred
0: perpetua and felicitas her servant um, who was pregnant by the way and also had a child uh, in prison um, both of them, along with about four or five other Christians who had been arrested together with them, they probably were in the same small group, if we could call it that, they were condemned to be um, exposed to wild beasts. And after a day of being gored or jostled around um, and just maimed by by beasts, um, in the end, they were all lined up together and each... Um, you know, stabbed through the throat and executed that way.
2: Wow, that that's a powerful story. I what? think
0: it's very convicting. Yes, very convicting. And if I could just say a, a line that see, this is why I think that it's really worth worth remembering these these lines of self sacrifice, um, and of this sort of dying discipleship, literally dying discipleship. I think are just worth um, bearing in mind. Um, Felicitas who I think is probably a bit younger than Perpetua. Uh, She has a child. um, she, She gives birth the night before they are to go out into the arena. And as she's in labor, and, you know, crying out in, in her labor pains, one of the guards says to her, well, you didn't think about this, did you? You know, you're you're in pain now. How, how's it going to be tomorrow when you're going to be thrown to the beasts? I guess you didn't think about that, did you? Um, something like that. And she says, you know, right now I suffer what I suffer, but tomorrow there will be another one in me and he will suffer for me because I suffer for him. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's very amazing because you have the the um, picture of the pregnant woman who's in labor and the child within her is causing her pain. But the next day, the one in her is going to suffer for her. So who is that? You know, I think she's referring to like what they're learning in their study, um, their union with Christ, that Christ is in you, that Christ is um, together there with the martyrs, and he's going to be suffering on her behalf just as she's suffering for him. Wow. Yeah.
2: So what other women during this era should we be aware of?
0: Well, some of the others that I mention in my book are um, Macrina and Melania. And um, Macrina was a woman who lived in the fourth century and Melania lived in the fourth and into the fifth centuries. Macrina Uh, is a big sister in a very famous family, and this is the family of the Cappadocians. They're an amazing family of about uh, 10 children. Three of them, three of the sons, uh, grew up to be bishops, and they were were bishops at a very critical time in the church's history during a, a controversy um, that basically uh, uh, degraded the deity of Christ called the Aryan Controversy. And Basil, the second brother, and Gregory, a younger brother, and Peter, the youngest brother, all three became bishops in, in various places and various cities around mm-hmm. Turkey. So Macrina is the big sister in this yeah. family. And Macrina is the one who kind of was um, uh, a spiritual guide, in this family, uh, she confronted her her brother Basil. So he's the eldest son, um, but she she confronted him with his um, his his pride, maybe a bit of intellectual snobbery. And um, well, he you know, was he, a smart guy. He was a smart and, guy. And
2: these uh, it's a large family, but it's it's also a a noble family of well means. And yes. so for them to renounce all of that to follow the Lord as bishops. That's quite an extraordinary thing.
0: It is. It is. And actually, Macrina kind of converted their large home into what we call a domestic monastery. It's not like they were just um, a community who just prayed all day or did nothing all day. Um, the, the way that this started even was that, you know, circumstances, I guess. Um, I think Macrina had always lived a very pious life, but she... She saw one day some women, some young women, uh, walking down the road, looking very disheveled, displaced. It turns out that they came from an area of the empire where there had there had been a famine, and they had no food, they had nowhere to live, they had to, you know, to to leave their city, and they were just on the road, uh, looking lost. And Macrina took them in, and that's kind of how how her community started. I think what Makrina teaches us is that sometimes we don't need to look for great, heroic, holy role models outside of our own family. You know, we can look to a parent, a grandparent, um, a great-grandparent, an, an aunt or uncle. You know, somebody is sort of, sort of closer to home rather than saying, you know, I look to, you know, this superhero in, in ministry or this Christian hero. Sometimes they're right there in our own family. I think that's very valuable.
1: Dr. Lane, you write this in your book. You say who we were. So a, a comment about the past, who we were shows us who we are. So that being in the present and challenges us to be who we ought to be in the future. Let me read that again. Who we were shows us who we are and challenges us to be who we ought to be in the future. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, first of all, let me say that that kind of summarizes a motto, if I could call it that, of the current retrieval movement. And, and what I mean by retrieval is that there are some Christian historians who feel like there's a lot in our Um, Christian past that we can learn from, that we can fruitfully appropriate for the church today, that we retrieve these lessons from the past for the sake of the renewal of the church today. Some of this has to do with identity, I think. So I think that recently, maybe still, uh, the evangelical church, evangelical Christians are kind of going through a Bit of an identity crisis to where there's maybe denominational questioning, denominational jumping, transfer, a lot of turning to non denominations because denominationalism is seen is seen to be you know baggage. Um, I see denominationalism or denominations, I guess, as um, tra- as tradition, as historical, as heritage. That's that's kind of how I see it, and so I think that. When we look at identity, we have to look to the past as well. I mean, we're Christians, look at previous Christians and then look back and back. And I think what we see in early Christianity at the very beginning of the movement, um, and you know my area is not New Testament, but you know flowing out of New Testament and going into the you know the the martyr era and and um, and so on, I think the characteristics of identity that we see there can tell us who Christians were, who Christians are, who Christians have always been, who we can still be. You know, I think it gives us some some parameters, some guidelines, some, um, you know, role models. Um, it helps us sort of guide our, our, our aspirations. It gives us something to kind of step into, you know. So what I see is that Christians were victors under persecution, that Christians um, endured, that they were resilient, that they were loving in their communities, that they you know, they, they bore witness to Christ's command to love your neighbor as yourself. And that was a, a huge part of, of their witness, um, that they were overcomers. I mean, this is how the Perpetua story fits in, that Christians have seen the church uh, as as a family, sometimes your earthly family doesn't understand spiritual convictions or, or the gospel or they're resistant. But you don't have to be alone because you have a new family. And we look back and say, "Oh, this is how it worked out in the you know in the early years in the early church, and this is how it can still work out today." Imitators of Christ, imitatio Christi, is a huge identity marker for Christians. This has to do with um, also with persecution. But but once persecution was ended, imitatio Christi, which means imitation of Christ, didn't go away as an ideal for Christians to fulfill and to kind of step into. So following Christ in sacrificial discipleship, um, imitating Christ, these are the things that we have to hold on to, this, this sort of cluster of identity markers that remains the same and that should remain the same even into the future, no matter what changes or shifts in our in our denominations. I don't think you have to discard your, um, your denomination or your denominational identity, as long as this other core of characteristics... Um, remains the same. So who we've always been tells us who we are and can sort of inspire us uh, into the future to to continue to be these things that that are biblical, that are grounded uh, biblically.
1: Can I ask a question just to to tie back into, so I know that you're trained as a church historian, but you also teach in the area of the doctrine of the Christian life, spiritual formation, and I've heard you give a talk on St. Anthony. Of course, you've written on Perpetua and others uh, especially from the early church, and with your comment that, to put it in my own words, but I think the same idea: we're we're better going forward when we know who we are behind us. Um, so when, when I think you the retrieval
0: look, movement would be happy with that. Yeah,
1: that's right. <laughs> so I'm thinking for the ordinary, just for ordinary Christians and ordinary listeners who are who are thoughtful Christian lay people, and they really want to take seriously God's call in their life. They're not looking to go to seminary. They're not trying to pastor a church but they want to take seriously even sort of this, this impulse towards retrieval. How, how do we grow in our imitation of Christ going forward by looking back? I've always thought if I were to walk up to St. Anthony and say, hey, how was your quiet time today? That wouldn't quite connect with him. There's something deeper and more meaningful for him. So how do we, how do we retrieve some of those practices in ways that help us to imitate Christ better today?
0: The Church Fathers were looking at the Scriptures, and so it's not like we're doing what the Church Fathers did. The Church Fathers were doing what they saw Jesus did and what they saw Paul did. So I don't think we have to worry about, you know, sort of this, this layer that that um, insulates us, that's called the Church Fathers, that keeps us, you know, one step away from from the Scripture. I think with, um, with Antony... He would highly recommend some additional solitude to what we get these days. Uh, If you asked him, How was your quiet time? I think he would say, Very long. (laughs) Yes.
1: (laughs) Prolonged. Uninterrupted. Very
0: quiet. Yes. Yes. But what I think is very valuable about solitude. is that you can kind of get away from the noise of the world. And, and it's not even just the noise that we seek out. Like, you know, you turn on the radio, so turn it off. There's noise all around us. And there's noise on the outside and noise on the inside. And it's very hard to sometimes hear the still small voice. You got to get still yourself um, to hear the still small voice, which we always need to be listening for. I think Anthony would say that he does some of the same things that we are doing. He wasn't able to go to church every Sunday. He was, you know, obviously carrying on his Christianity in a a different way out in the out in the Egyptian desert. But, you know, they had uh, prayer hours, you know, prayed several times a day, morning and mid-morning and noon and mid-afternoon and in the evening before they went to bed. And so kind of um, being mindful of the Lord through prayer throughout the day, uh, scripture memory, scripture recitation, uh, meditation on the scripture, that um, that was very important as well. You know, giving attention to those who are in need, um, even maybe when we would prefer to, you know, be sort of just attending to our own uh, spirituality, the, the ministries of um, fellowship and, and prayer and encouragement, those things are also very important. Worshiping together, gathering together, taking uh, communion together, coming together for important times in the church's life. Obviously, the you know, the structure of the liturgical year, the seasons of the church and celebrating those, because a lot of those are tied to the life of Christ and to events in the life of Christ. So those things are very important. And I tell you one way that, that the church remembered its great heroes was to have what they called um, feast days when they would memorialize the martyrdoms of the, the people in these stories that we're, uh, that we're talking about today. So, you know, Perpetua and Felicitas have a... Uh, have a feast day, and um, you know Saint um, Ignatius and Polycarp has a feast day. I think in in um, February, Justin Martyr. I mean, this is this is part of the way that we remembered all these because because there are sermons uh, that commemorate them, and also there are uh, you know court documents about their trial, and there are these martyrologies. So we've got all this material um, that we can read, so that so that we can so we can remember. There's a there's a sermon. Uh, from the, I believe the fifth or sixth century, that was preached on the saint day of, of Cyprian, uh, the bishop Cyprian, who died in the mid, um, the mid third century, about two fifties. And it says the reason that we gather today to remember Cyprian's life um, is so that not just so that we don't forget, but so that you don't ever have the opportunity to say oh I didn't know yes I never heard and I and I didn't know I forgot and this is said several times throughout that short sermon uh, that we call a homily
2: the amnesia that infects evangelicalism is amazing Um, and tragic and tragic And and it goes not just for the patristics I preached a sermon on the life of Lottie Moon and had dozens of people come up and say, you know, I've always heard her name. I just wondered who she was. It's amazing and and, uh, just stunning how few evangelicals really have an appreciation of our history. Speaking of history, we've been talking with Dr. Stefana Dan Lang, and she's the assistant professor of divinity at Beeson Divinity School. Her book is Retrieving History. Memory and Identity Formation in the Early Church. Dr. Lang, thank you for being with us today.
0: I really enjoyed it. Thank you.
2: Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the Church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you are in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you are called in the future by visiting sebts.edu.
1: Now it's time for another edition of On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where we tell you what we're reading right now and why it's interesting for you. So, Dr. Keithley, what's on your bookshelf? I have
2: a book that I just received. Um, I had the privilege of reading the manuscript whenever the authors first wrote it. And, um, in fact, I wrote an endorsement that's on the book. Uh, The book's title is called The Manifold Beauty of Genesis 1. And these authors, uh, Greg Davidson, who is a geologist, and Ken Turner, who is a theologian, do a great job of showing seven different models or seven different approaches to Genesis chapter 1. And instead of showing them as seven competing ways to approach Genesis 1, they're actually uh, seven complementary ways of understanding. It's sort of like a seven layer cake, if you will. And so that's why they have the seven layers. And um, they do so in a way that any layperson can understand what they're writing about. They commu- write uh, very beautifully and effectively. Uh, they talk about how we should understand Genesis 1 as a song, hmm. or we should understand uh, Genesis 1 as an analogy or how we should understand it as a polemic, as pushing back yeah. upon uh, the, the pagan uh, beliefs surrounding them, yeah. how they should we should understand this as a covenant established God and humanity through God dealing with Adam. Again, uh, the, the way of understanding Genesis 1 is the establishment of a temple, mm-hmm. and that motif is all the way through the Bible. Then again, understanding Genesis 1 and the calendar What is going on in the establishment of Israel's calendar in Genesis Genesis chapter 1? And then finally, they talk about the the land. What is being promised and offered to Israel Mm -hmm. in Genesis 1? It's a wonderful work. And so uh, you can find it on Amazon or wherever you you purchase books. The name of the book uh, is called uh, The Manifold Beauty, of Genesis 1 with Greg Davidson and Ken Turner as the
1: authors. Fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Keithley. And thank you all for listening today. If you enjoy the podcast, take just a few seconds, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast, give us a rating and review. This uh, helps us go a long way towards spreading the word about Christ and culture and makes it more possible for others to listen. Thank you again for listening and we'll see you next time.